The episode this week is sponsored by Paul Florence Mortgage Services Limited. Paul has a wealth of knowledge around mortgages to bring to the table and offers a highly professional and friendly service. Paul is available for daytime and evening appointments to suit your needs and can also meet you in the comfort of your own home. Let Paul advise you on your remortgage deals, house moving options, or if you're a first time buyer, he is sure to secure you a cracking deal, saving you time and money. Paul Florence Mortgage Services is based in McDuff and covers a wide radius, including Banff, Turriff, Bucky, Fraserburgh, and Elgin. You can contact Paul on 077998885438 or message him on the Paul Florence Mortgage Services Limited Facebook page. For more information on the services offered, that can be found on www.mcduffmortgages.co.uk. So if you need a mortgage, don't delay. Give Paul a call today. There is a chance you may hear some swear words during this podcast. If that's not for you, switch off now. A very warm welcome back, one and all, to the Beyond Canal Park podcast. A busy period here at Podcast HQ, as you may have seen, with the launching of our January transfer window competition. I'll be giving away a prize each day of the window, that's 31 prizes in total. It only costs a fiver to enter, and for that, you get into each and every draw. There's some cracking prizes to be won too, including a Scotland shirt signed by Colin Hendry and Andy Gorham, a Champions League medal signed by Jurgen Klopp, and an Aston Villa signed strip signed by Des Bremner and other members of the European Cup team. There's lots, lots more vouchers, drink, etc. There's plenty of prizes there for everyone. Get in touch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for entry details. Proceeds are all going to Bright Horizons, a charity based locally that I'm involved with. This week's guest, Ali Begg, has also donated a signed copy of his new book as a prize, and he joined me this week for a chat. He talked to me about dreaming of playing for Aberdeen as a youngster before going on to be a model and then a member of the band Bad Boys Inc. He also chats about his work as a TV presenter at MUTV and Celtic TV, as well as a producer in Singapore and in Qatar with Richard Keyes and Andy Gray. Ali also chats plenty about his beloved Aberdeen FC. He tells us about his new book and he names his all-time Aberdeen Eleven. And here's what he had to say. I'm joined today by a man who grew up playing football in the northeast of Scotland, representing them at schoolboy levels and had trials with pro clubs before a different route to fame and success opened up. Part of a hit boy band and a model in the 90s, he then became a successful television presenter and producer, as well as an author, most recently releasing his book, Aberdeen European Nights, earlier this year. Here to tell us all about his fascinating career and all things Aberdeen is Ali Begg. Ali, how are you doing this evening? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on today. No, it's a pleasure to have you. Is the memory still uh, razor sharp? Oh, don't you worry about that. I'm all over it. <laughs> <laughs> You've probably done a few of these anyway, this, so yeah. Uh... Yeah, one or two, so the, the uh, memory's okay. I'm fully prepped. <laughs> it's actually more nerve-wracking for, for me tonight, because usually it's, it's uh, sort of football players, but this is a professional I'm on with tonight, so I'll be getting judged. Not at all, not at all. Uh, I always like my guests to uh, take me back to their their early days and where the love of football began and and, Mm. and where it all came about for you. It started actually in 1978 
And at the time, we were living in Holland. We were living in Maastricht. Okay. And my father was working for a charter airline company hmm. out there. So took us out there in 1975. And I can still quite vividly remember his celebration when Archie Gemmell scored that wonder goal against Holland. That is still very, very much vivid in my mind. I can remember him coming out of his seat (laughs) and screaming at the top of his voice. And it was was only one of two times that I ever saw him do that. Hence why it is so, it's still quite prominent at the front of my mind. So that's really where it all started Mm -hmm. was 1978. And then when my dad moved us to Aberdeen a year later, that is really when my love for football and my understanding of football really began. Yeah, so you, you obviously played and you were, you were donned after as a youngster as well. Was that, was that oh, shared by the whole family? So. Yeah, it, very much so. It almost became na- quite natural for me to support Aberdeen because my father was a football fan anyway. Mm-hmm. My father always followed Clyde. Okay. He's a big Clyde fan, my dad. And then when we moved to Aberdeen, he used to sit and read the newspaper in the morning when we were all around the breakfast table and he would just wax lyrical about this local football team that had just been crowned league champions. And I just remember that because it was very unusual for a team outside of Glasgow and outside of Celtic or Rangers to win the league. So I can really, again, quite remember that quite vividly that my dad was speaking about these guys through reading the articles in the newspaper. And then he would watch sports scene and Scott mm-hmm. sport, and he would allow me to stay up if sports scene was on quite late. And he would allow me to watch the Aberdeen games. And from there, James, I just became familiar with the players, yeah. started to understand the game a little bit. And because I started playing as well in primary school, it just became very natural for me to support Aberdeen. And am I right that you were a defender when you were playing? So who, was your, who were your favourite players for, for Aberdeen when you were growing up? Well, Willie Miller was, mm-hmm. he was my, he still is my all-time hero. He was the first player that really caught my attention mm-hmm. as a youngster. And Plus. when I was playing, I was I was a sort of a jack of all trades because mm-hmm. I was a bit of a utility player, I guess, because I could play up front, I could play in midfield, I could play at the back. But eventually I settled at fullback and that mm-hmm. really became my position. And I actually ended up playing semi-professional football at fullback and uh, represented the north of Scotland at fullback as well. So that really became a natural pr- um, position after playing a number of different roles for various boys clubs in the youth. Yeah, and growing up, obviously, you talked about the, the, the Dons were, were the team in Scotland. Absolutely fantastic times for the club, and obviously, mm-hmm. Gothenburg must stand out as a, a moment. Am I, oh, yeah. am I right? Were you there, or you were watching yeah. it, certainly? You were yeah. in Gothenburg? I was, yeah. I was 10 years old. Amazing. And my dad at the time, very much like what he was doing when we were living in Holland, he was working for a small charter airline company outside mm-hmm. of Aberdeen Airport, operating out of Aberdeen Airport. And he organised a number of the flights to take the fans over to Gothenburg. Ah, yeah. So we we went along with my neighbour, our bank manager, who was a good friend of the family. And we took my best friend at the time, uh, a guy called Ewan Taylor, who remains yeah. to this day my best friend. <laughs> so I was 10 years old, Ewan was 11, and we went with mum and dad, and as I said, my neighbour and, and our good friends. And again, I, it was, it's just... It's something I will never, ever forget. That you know, experience from, just hooks you for life, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. It's a one-off. And I don't, you know, as, as much as it pains me to say, and this is not me being sort of 
downtrodden on the on Aberdeen Football mm. Club, but I don't think it'll be done again. Ah, uh, particularly in, in particularly in my lifetime. If it happens so, again, uh, it would be an even oh, bigger feat. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 oh, for sure. If we did it now, dearie me, considering where the game has gone and how much money is in the game and how much the game yeah. has changed, it would be absolutely incredible if we won any sort of European trophy. But Aberdeen, do you think Aberdeen had the best players in Scotland at that point, or was it was a lot of it down to the manager? Oh, I think there's a combination of both. <laughs> because if you, like, for example, I know we're going to pick our best 11 later, yeah, but if you yeah. pick Aberdeen's best 11 at that time mm-hmm. and then try and compare it with other players who were playing in Scotland at the time, so so let's not take into consideration your Graham Soonis's and your Kenny Dalglish's mm-hmm. and these type of guys who were playing down south, but for the guys that were playing in Scotland, if you put them, like Willie Miller against David Neary, um, you know, Stuart McKimmy against Morris Malpass, just off the top of my head, Jim Leighton, Hamish McAlpine or Pat Bonner. Mm-hmm. For me, there's no argument. And I always, to this day, I will always argue that the Aberdeen eleven that beats Real Madrid on that night were the best Scottish players at that time yeah. in Scotland. And it didn't hurt that uh, Sir Alex was was there leading them either. <laughs> well, he kind of he kind of helped along, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what memories do you, do you have of that night? Do you remember the goals and things? Were you too little to be well, seeing yeah. everything, or you just is everything still vivid yeah. in your mind? I, I actually, what I do remember very vividly is the rain because uh-huh. the rain was just incredible. And if you speak to any Aberdeen fan that made it to Gothenburg, they'll tell you exactly the same. The rain was just, in, oh my God, I've never seen anything like it. So there was a big worry that the game was actually going to get called off and postponed until the Thursday night. So there was a lot of talk about the game actually being shifted mm. 24 hours later. Uh-huh. But thankfully, the game went ahead on the Wednesday night. And I remember getting into the stadium quite late as the teams were actually walking out of the tunnel. So I never I never got the chance to ask my dad why we got so late to the stadium. Because as a 10-year-old, you're totally oblivious to it. <laughs> so I remember the, the first place that he put us, Eric Black hit the bar. Aye. Scissor kick, and I didn't see it. I couldn't see it uh-huh. because there was a there was a, a fan literally standing right in front of me, and I, I completely missed it. And I, I remember feeling really quite upset and angered about it. And I remember pulling at my dad and saying, I can't see, I can't see. And he actually shifted us further down. Uh, so yeah. instead of being sort of covered by the rain, um, sorry, where we were um, covered by the, the stand coming over the top and sheltering us from the rain, mm. he actually moved us further down, uh, which exposed us to the <laughs> rain. But at least we got a good vantage point uh, and we were able to see everything from there. So, so oh yeah, I can still remember everything, James, yeah. Amazing. Um, you mentioned there that you represented, so, uh, was it North of Scotland at under 15, under 16 levels? Um, yeah. Was it a dream yeah. to be a pro player yourself? Oh, yeah. It's Aye. all I ever wanted to do. It's yeah. all I ever thought about. It's all I ever put my focus and my energy into. Still what I want I, to do. Oh, do you know, <laughs> give it half a chance. I think I'll I missed the boat at 38. Year, I, <laughs> yeah, I'll be 50 next year. I still think I could polish my boots and yeah. out now and then, even with a new knee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that never goes away, and that's all Aye. I ever wanted to do was be a pro football player. It was just... It was an absolute obsession of mine, mm-hmm. and I was very fortunate that I got the opportunity to train as a, a youngster at Petardry with the crop of the boys from the Aberdeen region um, oh, yeah. on a, for six months or so on a Tuesday and Thursday night under the watchful eye of Drew Jarvie, Jockey Scott, 
um, Lenny Taylor, these type of guys, uh, yeah. George Adams. So I was extremely fortunate. So when I, I got the when I got called into George's office to tell me that I wasn't going to get invited back because they didn't think that I was progressing, I was it almost it almost broke me. Devastating. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was absolutely. Again, it's a moment I've never forgotten in life. Yeah. And but I used it as a, a tool, actually, mm-hmm. James, because right. I, I was 16. I was just away to leave school, and I, I genuinely believed that I was going to make it. I thought I was doing okay, and all of a sudden, I, you know, that dream was torn away from me, and I yeah. really had no idea what to do next. So I. I felt sorry for myself for quite a wee while, and I love my. I really lost my love for football uh, yeah. for mm. for a good six months. I would have to say, but once I sort of got over myself and I started focusing again on what I wanted to do, I actually used it as a means of inspiration to yeah. get back on my feet, really believe in myself, and drive myself forward. I've always used that moment throughout my life to better myself and to get over issues or problems that I've had throughout my life. I think, well, when I was kind of doing the research on you before this, it's, that seems to be a recurring theme that you use the, the sort of bad times to, to launch yourself and reinvent yourself and yeah. show the levels yeah. of resilience. Um, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned George Adams there. I think you grew up with, with Derek, your son, didn't you, playing I football? Did. And you're still, whilst this day, he's obviously Bradford manager now, but he went on to have a great career in the game. Fantastic. I always knew he would. I remember my first ever boys club was Ochter Ellen Boys Club, based okay. out of Ellen. Mm-hmm. And my first ever game was under 13 level. And Derek was playing for the under 13s. Now, he was nine years old. (laughs) I had just turned 13. (laughs) And in terms of ability, he was absolutely head and shoulders over all of us on the pitch that day. And what I also remember about that day is that George was the referee. So George had to, (laughs) he had to referee us through the game. So those were my first memories of George and Derek. And Derek and I have remained firm friends throughout life. And we speak to each other very often. And I always knew he was going to make it because he's also a very driven, ambitious young man. And what people also forget is he's a phenomenally good coach. He's a really good coach. And you just have to look at the success. That's right, and he, he is driven. Uh, you need that to match the talent, don't you? And that's, that's why he made a career for himself. And obviously, yeah. uh, guidance for George as well, who, who's of similar yes. nature. Very much so, very <laughs> um, much so. Would you, would you like to see Derek at, at the Dons uh, as a head man yes. one day? Yeah, oh, 100%. Aye. I actually said before Stephen, yeah. a lot of folk that follow me on social media were asking me for my Aye. opinion, yeah. and I, I always gave them one name, and it was Derek's name, yeah. because Derek worked wonders at Morecambe. That's he did right. an unbelievable job at Plymouth. What a job he did at Ross County, and people forget that. I know, so yeah. working with sort of small provincial football clubs, very much like our own, with very small budgets to work with, mm-hmm. players with... I would say limited ability. Somehow he's able to get the best out of them, and I think right. Derek one day could be a perfect fit for Aberdeen. Yeah, I believe he got Morgan promoted uh, on the second lowest budget in the whole of league football. Was that right? He did, uh, and when he first took over Morgan, they were bottom of the right. football league, mm-hmm. and he got them promoted. Right. What a job he did there, dearie me! Do you think that uh, the the success that Aberdeen had through the sorry eighties, early nineties, even? Um, the fans look down on taking a manager for, for League One, League Two. Isn't he ambitious enough? No, I don't think so. No. I think, listen, as long as a coach comes in with pedigree mm. and people can see the pedigree, and Derek obviously has that, 
I think Aberdeen fans are willing to give anybody a go. Look at the yeah. look what's happening at the moment. There was a lot of scepticism about mm-hmm. um, Stephen Glass coming in because of the natural tie-in with the chairman and because he was only experienced up to a certain limit. That's right. But we can we're starting to see what he is trying to implement at the football club and what he's trying to instill. Mm-hmm. And I think our brand of football is better. It's a little bit gung-ho at the moment. And I think he's quite obviously had to learn on the job. Defensively, we've been poor up until recently. We have, again, up until recently, very much struggled in the final third. But I think we're starting to see the brand of football that Stephen really wants for Aberdeen Football Club. And... Listen, I've, I've stood behind him all the way. I've, I've publicly stood behind him as well because I can see what mm-hmm. he's doing. I know for a fact he's working incredibly hard to make sure that it works. He's, he's so driven. He's so determined. And I, I just think, you know, when we were going through that patch where we, I think it was five games in a row that we lost and he was getting some serious stick and the fans were slowly starting to turn. Yeah. I was like, just stick at it, just yeah. stick at it. I, I can, I can see what you're trying to do, and I, and I, I really think that we're not that far away from being a really good side. Yeah. The St. Johnson game will be an interesting one, so we'll see. But he needs to go on a run where he wins half a dozen games on the spin. That's what I think he really needs. But I think he's getting there. Yeah. You, you back him to to, uh, to lead Aberdeen to maybe a, a first trophy for a long time. Oh, I really hope so. It's very difficult to predict because <laughs> our our form yeah. in the in the cups recently has been a little bit up and down. And just whenever we get to the final stage, there appears to be some sort of stage fright or a psychological block where we just can't get over the final hurdle. Mm-hmm. You know, look at the Europa League qualifiers, look at the Conference League qualifier yeah. that we competed in in the summer. There just seems to be that psychological block where we just can't get over that final hurdle. But I'm hoping somehow that this group of players are able to go that one step further. Uh, yeah. Well, back to you, Ali. Um, obviously, the footballing didn't quite work out. So how do you go for aspiring young footballer to model? How did that come about? That's <laughs> crazy. So I used to get my hair cut in Aberdeen in a salon called Ashoka. Okay. And I've been going there for, oh, since I can remember, because my mum used to go there. So when I, I think I must have been about 10 or 11, my mum took me to Ashoka to get my hair cut. And it was the first time that it really got styled properly because my hair was always an absolute... It was just garbage. So, and I remember, you know, Philip, who was the co-manager at the time, Philip and Malcolm, Philip cut my hair for me at the time, and I've never forgotten it. And he just styled it. And I thought, well, hello, this is really quite cool. (laughs) So fast forward a few years, Ashoka were competing in the Scottish National Hair Show in Mm -hmm. Edinburgh. And Philip and Malcolm asked me if I would like to participate as one of the models for Ashoka in the show. So I did, and I got spotted by an agency from Japan. So they invited me down to London to have a meeting with them, and they wanted me to go to Tokyo and do six months in Tokyo. (laughs) 
But at the time, I had no photographs. I had no professional photographs or anything like that. So she said to me, she advised me to go back home to Aberdeen and to try and get some professional photographs done and then to see if I could actually get into an agency in London. Uh, yeah. Because she said to me, if you get a little bit of work and you build a portfolio with professional work, <laughs> it will really hold you in good stead when I send you to Tokyo. So a friend of mine, who was also a model at the time, was moving down to London to study the media at university. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, look, why don't we go down in the summer before I move down? And why don't we just go around London and try and get some meetings with a host of modeling agencies and see if anybody will take you on? And that's exactly what we did. So Martin yeah. and I came down to London we went around, oh gosh, James, we must have gone around a dozen. <laughs> and honestly, it's it's soul destroying because you walk <laughs> in, you show them the photograph, they laugh at you and they send you packing and you just think, oh God, this is <laughs> just, this is killing my ego. Yeah, great for self-esteem. Then, huh? <laughs> oh, just honestly, talk about taking a knock. And to be honest with you, it was actually quite good for me because it brought me down a peg or two. And I think actually it, it gave me a lesson to be a little bit more humble. Aye, okay. Aye. Um, but then, believe it or not, and I swear to God this is true, we had one more agent to go and see, and they were called Lorraine Ashton IMG. Hmm. So we walked in, and I was feeling really quite down. I didn't think anything would happen. And the guy took one look at my photograph and said, when can you move down? Yeah. And I honestly, I, Martin and I looked at each other with just stunned amazement. <laughs> And he said, right, let's sign you up. He said, I'd, I'd love to take you on. I think you've got a, you've got an interesting look and I think we could work with it. And yeah, come down whenever you're ready. <laughs> and that was it. I went back to Aberdeen. Martin and I went back to Aberdeen on the train. And then we planned for us to move to London together. And that's yeah. what we did. So yeah. we moved to London together. We stayed in a small flat in Chiswick. I went outside modelling. Martin went to university and did modelling part-time. Mm-hmm. And before I knew it, I started getting work. And then I got spotted by Models One. Mm-hmm. Now, Models One are yeah. probably the most renowned agency in the whole of the UK. Just one of the biggest agencies with the best people. <laughs> and they took me on. And I just I couldn't believe it. And from there, my modelling career just took off. And I was working just about every single week and right. making making a fairly decent living from it. And what, I loved it. What does uh, a week in the life of a model look like then? So a typical day would be like, so for example, on a Friday, at five o'clock on a Friday, I would get a phone call from the person who is called a booker. Mm-hmm. And this person basically looks after you on a one-to-one basis. And she would say to me, right, nine o'clock on Monday morning, you have to be in Soho to meet this person because he's casting for this job. Ah, yeah. Once you're finished there, you've got to make your way across town to Piccadilly <laughs> and you'll be at another casting for, say, Littlewood's catalogue. <laughs> then you have a two hour break and then you have to go to, I don't know, um, you have to go up north. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, and you have to go and meet another person. So she would give you a list of castings okay. to do throughout the day. So a typical day would be basically meeting all these people, showing them your portfolio, and hopefully charming them enough <laughs> that they give you the job. Because 
I was quite a personable person. I always liked uh, yeah. to chat to folk. I didn't just want to go in, go and look at me. Here's my photographs. How wonderful am I? You've got to take me for this job. I'd go in and be really friendly and try and chat to them and ask them how their day was and just try and be me, if yeah. I'm being honest. Yeah. And I think nine times out of ten, I think my personality got the job, not my look. Mm-hmm. So that's basically a typical day. And if you got a job, then you would you would have to book out a full day to do a job because right. a photo shoot could take it mm. could take a full day and if you got lucky you got booked for two or three days because <laughs> then obviously your fee increases uh-huh. so so yeah so that's that's that was a typical modelling day really. Uh, really good fun. really enjoyed it great life stuff for a, a young boy for Faber Dean moving down there but you must have had your eyes opened oh stupid <laughs> honestly just you, you're like. Seriously, how have I ended up like here with you know some of the most gorgeous looking people that you've ever seen in your life? <laughs> and you know, there were, I'll never forget. I had to do a photo shoot for um, I think it was Cosmopolitan magazine, if my memory serves me correct. Mm. And the lassie's name completely escapes me, but she was a very popular model back in the day. Okay, and she's oh, you're just like you know, how am I even in your company? Uh-huh. Uh, and again, you learn a great deal from these people because I would get tips from them and I would watch them and, and see how they make just the slightest head adjustment, mm. which would capture the photographer and he'd be able to get the photograph that he's looking for. Because yeah. I would, because I, I was so inexperienced, I would go in and just stand there and be completely <laughs> stiff and not really know how to do it until people started saying to me, look, you've, you've got to move about, you've uh, got to to put the moves in so that the, the photographer can actually capture you. And, you know, the photographer will, will sort of guide you through it um, and all that sort of stuff. But eventually, you know, I, I became experienced enough where I would walk into a photo photo shoot studio and be able to just yeah, pose yeah. And, and look at the camera a certain way or look away from the camera in a certain way or move your eyes in a, slight, a certain angle, all that sort of stuff. So it was. It really was an eye opener. It was. It, I keep saying it. It was just brilliant fun. Amazing. It really was amazing. Oh, well, the only chance I've got is I think is if they're looking for a body double for Ricky Gervais <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, from the modelling, you obviously got spotted uh, to join the boy band. It was Bad Boys yeah. Inc., wasn't it? And they were a band yeah. that were were set up to kind of rival Take That back in the early nineties, weren't they? Well, I, I wouldn't say we were a rival to Take That because we were. <laughs> You know, they were miles ahead of us. I uh, think that would be an insult to take that, that we were rivals <laughs> of them. <laughs> how was your, but, yeah. did you have to sort of audition singing-wise? or yeah. How was your singing yeah. voice? Did you did you done a bit of singing or did you need no. a lot of Cher's no. auto-tune? <laughs> James, I swear to God, the only singing I ever done was Inside Pataudry. That was the only singing that was ever in my remit, was singing songs so it was a it was a ridiculous sequence of events. When I think back on it, I just think to myself, "Good God!" Right, so it was, yes. a, it was a manufactured band. Then you didn't even know yeah, the other totally. guys. No, no, didn't know them at all. Didn't yeah. know them from Adam. Honestly, it was totally ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, you know, we'll come to it in a minute. But, right. but I, I I really struggled with it for right, a, okay. for a long, long time because I felt like a fraud. I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. Uh-huh. But I got my my photograph. What you have when you're when you're modelling, you have what is called a head card, which is just basically yeah, okay. one card with say half a dozen photographs of it on either side. 
and this card gets distributed to photographers, booking agents, blah, blah, blah. And a photographer so happened to see my model card and he gave it to this record producer called Ian Levine. And Ian, up until he put us together, had been producing Take That and to his great credit had given Take That take that their platform because he produced Could It Be Magic A Million okay. Love Songs mm-hmm. their, their first big hits yeah. but the issue that I had which I only found out latterly was that Ian wanted to basically take control of Take That and Take That's management were not keen for him to do that okay. so he got the ump mm-hmm. so he decided to put us together to rival Take That yeah. now if I had known that I would never have joined the band because yeah. for me you know you can't use four young lads yeah for a, a mission of revenge it's an absolute nonsense you can't be playing with people's emotions like that but anyway to cut a long story short I had to audition I had to dance for him okay yeah. <laughs> I've seen the very um, I've seen a YouTube video of the very first like boys own performance and it was basically just dancing <laughs> yes yeah don't trust it. you know thank, thankfully mine was slightly better than the old boys own audition um but I'll never forget phoning my father when I got back to my, my little studio flat right. I said dad honestly I said I, I, he says what, what were you doing and I said I was just dancing he said was he being untoward I said no not at all and right. he said you know did you keep your clothes on he's like Jesus dad, of course I'll keep my clothes on Christ I'm not that desperate <laughs> oh dear um but in the end, you know, I got the gig, which was yeah. just ridiculous. And I have to, again, I have to confess, I didn't really get what I was doing because <laughs> up until I met the other four, the other three lads, yeah. I thought I was like auditioning for a music video okay. or to, to sort of be, you know, a background dancer for a famous band in a music video or something. I was really <laughs> quite baffled by it all. And it took the lady who was our PR girl, yeah. a lady called Carolyn Norman, to sit me down and say, you're really not getting this, are you? And I said, no, I'm really not. <laughs> and she said, you are going to be part of a boy band. Now, I confess, I was never into pop music when I was a boy. No. You know, I was into bands like U2 and the yeah. Sex Pistols and, you know, <laughs> the, the Clash and the Jam and the Who. This was my type of music growing yeah. up. So I was never into to really pop music. Yeah. So, you know, she really had to sit me down and explain it. And, you know, when the light bulb went on, I was like, oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> right, shit. okay, now I get it. Oh, <laughs> shit, Yeah. <laughs> And me and the other lads was just, it was bizarre. You know, they were, we were all plucked from obscurity and put together and got basically told, look, if all things go well, you're going to become famous pop stars. (laughs) Jeez, peace, you know. Um, Did you end up getting on? Yeah, again, that was the the mad thing we did. Mm -hmm. The four of us all got on famously. When Matt, you know, we, we had one guy who we thought was going to be our lead singer, and it didn't work out with him at all. Mm. And that's when we actually thought, well, this isn't going to work, so I'll just go back to modelling. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I got a phone call from the producer to, to come down to the studio because he wanted me to meet this guy. And uh, so I quickly jumped from the bus, went down to the studio and met Matthew. Okay. And Matthew in the studio sang Careless Whisper, a cappella. Oh, brilliant. And, oh, my God, <laughs> honestly... He, Oh, it was, and Matthew was sensational. It was it was so George Michael esque. It was right. frightening, and I've just turned to Ian and gone, 
mate, honestly, if he's coming in, this could take us to a different level. It okay. really could. This is the this is the sort of the credibility uh, yeah. that that desperately need if we bring in somebody like Matthew. So thankfully Matthew joined us and from there, again, just a ridiculous sequence of events. Before I know it, you know, we've signed a five album record deal with AM Records. <laughs> who at the time were, were looking yeah. after Dina Carlin, Sting and the Carpenters and the police and uh-huh. Delamitri. And I'm just like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> yeah, just crazy. Um, but I'm kind of glad that it happened so quickly because it didn't really give me time to think. Ah, uh, yeah. You would have talked yourself into it. <laughs> yeah, because I kind of just went with the flow. Aye. And I thought, like, I've got nothing to lose. And then I started to think about it a little bit more serious from a financial point of view, that potentially, because of the, the image that is portrayed by by the music industry, yeah. that you do become, you know, if you make it, you can potentially become wealthy and, right. you know, from a financial point of view, it can be very rewarding. And I just thought, well, if I, if I, if I go into this and we do it properly, we do it correctly, there's the potential here to make my family financially secure. And that was the only reason that I joined the band. I didn't join it because I wanted to be famous. I had Hmm. no interest in being famous or being a celebrity. That was not the remit. That was not my thinking. My thinking was purely, this is a chance to make my mum and dad financially secure for the rest of their lives so they, they have no more worries or no more concerns. That was the, that was my driving force behind joining that band brilliant you ended up with a bit of chart success in, in a couple of years as a band and I believe you, you were on top of the pops yeah we were on top of the pops must have been a great times. experience <laughs> it, was, it, it was incredible again with the power of hindsight hmm. when I look back at it now I, I really have to pinch myself that we we performed on top of the pops and we performed with some of the world's greatest artists I was going to ask that who, who else time, was on <laughs> so, for example, th- there were bands like E17, uh-huh. Seal, Wet, 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 Sir Cliff Richard. Uh-huh. Um, I can't think of others off the top of my head, but those are those are the, the guys I the time, really right? remember. Big names at the time. And, again, when I think back on it, at the time, we just took it for granted that we were going to get top of the pops. Uh-huh. And it was, it, it was just another performance to get through but not really think of the the consequences of how big that program was yeah. and the day passed me by and okay. i really regret that to this day i didn't savor the day, it. Mm-hmm. yeah i didn't save it at all and i was in fact i was only saying to my wife today believe it or not that my biggest regret one of my biggest regrets is that i have nothing for my time in bad boys Inc. nothing at all okay because yeah. Because I got I got rid of it all right. um, because I, I was left so traumatized by the experience that I got rid of everything that I had, mm. and it, it, I never took any photographs. No. I, I didn't I didn't have a camcorder with me. There was no uh, smartphones no, then, so no, nothing. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't I didn't record any of my experiences. Yeah. Now, considering the experience that I had, where we travelled all over the world and met some amazing mm. people and toured, and performed in some of the the world's most famous TV shows, yeah. I have absolutely no documentary of that whatsoever. Huh. And uh, it, it's something I actually do regret now. There must be footage on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, be- yeah. I believe that uh, you were quite successful in Scandinavia and in Japan as well, especially. That must have been, yeah. must have been magic touring the world as young It lads. was. That, that was the one thing that I really enjoyed about being in, in Bad Boys Inc. was the performing 
I love doing our shows because I really believe that we put on a really good show yeah. because the, the lads and I started to struggle very early on with the quality of our music that was being produced for us on our behalf. Okay. okay. I, I just felt, you know, I remember going in and listening to the album for the first time and thinking, oh God, mm. I, I don't like this at all. And I remember eventually when our vocals were good enough to be able to lay down tracks and to do backing vocals properly after months of training, yeah. I just I just remember standing in a studio one day and thinking, really, this is absolute shit. It's just shit. And <laughs> the fans are not stupid. No. If they do not like a song, they're not going to buy it. No. And people would say to us, oh, you could put out Bar Bar Black Sheep and they would buy it. And I'm like, no, 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 guys, no. that... That's a load of shite. That is not going to happen. If they don't like our song, they're not going to buy it. It's as simple as that. And I remember when we released our debut single, it was okay. I, I personally didn't like it. I thought it was very weak. But I, by that point, I was starting to really understand how the industry worked. Mm. Okay, I was still very young. I was still very inexperienced. And... I understood to a degree that there had to be some humbleness about the opportunity that I'd been given and that I needed to rem remind myself of the of my place. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folk would say to me, Ali, just, you know, calm down a bit. Just remember where you are and this opportunity that you've been given. Because I was starting to get a bit vocal about okay. the way we were being managed. And the second single was only released because it was the producer's mother's favourite track. <laughs> And it was awful. The song was uh, awful. And I knew at that time that if you have a top 20 hit with your first single, mm. your next single has got to be a top 15 or a top right. 10 hit for you to con continue the momentum, mm -hmm. which means that the second record has got to be better than your debut record. Yeah. I hope I'm making sense here. Yeah, yeah. And our second single was garbage. Tuh. It was absolutely garbage. And... It went in to the charts and it fell straight back out again and we lost the momentum uh -huh. and that's when I really started to appreciate that things behind the scenes were not as rosy as I first mm. imagined them or thought them to be and by that point I was also starting to struggle with as I mentioned earlier this feeling like a fraud uh, okay. because even though we were manufactured we were told don't say you were manufactured no. make up a story okay yeah and, you know, we would make up the story that three of us knew each other and we brought in Matthew. It's a little bit of nonsense. Right. And I, I was like, why are we lying to these people? Why can't we just be upfront and be mm -hmm. honest about it all? Surely we're going to get a lot more respect from people if we're going to be honest instead of pulling the wool over their eyes. Yeah. And I just, I remember my girlfriend at the time, she was, um, she was a trainee dancer okay. and she was working out of a stage performance school in West London, which is a very well-known and prominent sort of stage school. Right. And she was working so hard to get the type of life and opportunity that had literally been handed to me on a silver plate. Mm -hmm. And now, don't get me wrong, there wasn't any resentment or anything like that. She was very proud of me and she really pushed me and she helped me a great deal. But it made me feel guilty right. okay. that... I had just been plucked from obscurity with no sort of training, no performance background or anything like that. And I was all of a sudden in the public eye, in a pop group, hmm. getting chart, you know, getting records in the charts, getting recognized in public, going on TV shows, being on the front cover of magazines. Hmm. 
and all her pals who were working incredibly hard, who were phenomenal singers and phenomenal entertainers, you know, having to work in a bar just to be able to cover their rent and going to auditions to try and get on the West End stage and not getting anywhere and eventually people giving up. And I really started to struggle with that. And I really started to feel guilty for being a part of Bad Boys Inc. Okay, yeah. A cutthroat industry for, for most of them, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Aye. Very much so. Because one minute you're the flavour of the day, the next minute you're totally cast aside. Yeah. Aye. You must have... Did you, did you have the... The screaming fans in Japan, like you see in the, oh, yeah. in the bands, yeah. it's nuts yeah. there, is it? <laughs> it was absolutely incredible. And right. to be fair, wherever we went, we always got absolutely mobbed. Right. And again, it's something that I really look back on with a great deal of fondness because mm-hmm. it was great fun. And it's hugely humbling now for me to think back on it. And it's also extremely flattering yeah. because these guys are taking their time out to come and see you. And they spend their money on you to buy your records and they and they spend their money to follow you around the country and to come and watch you in your shows. Yeah. And, and at the time, I, I didn't really appreciate it as much as I do now um, because for a long time, I never spoke about the band. You know, if That's James, yeah. speaking hypothetically, if you and I had met 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I would this conversation would not be taking place. No, no. It was only recently where my wife was able to sort of open me up and, mm-hmm. and get me more confident about talking about my experience in, in Bad Boys Inc. So it's really been in the past 10 years where I've been able to open up and be quite open about the whole experience. Mm-hmm. So the, the fans were, uh, it's, it really was amazing. I remember getting to Japan and, and we got told by, the police came onto the aeroplane okay. and told us that we weren't allowed to get off <laughs> because we were a security risk. Now they were ex- they were expecting a few hundred fans to turn up, well, a few thousand fans turned up airport and just turned the place upside down. So in the end, and I swear to you on my on my parents' grave, this is true. We had to climb into what was the cargo hold of the aeroplane, which was a, a, a jumbo seven four seven. We had to go in there. And we had to climb into one of these huge metal containers, which they used to ship cargo. (laughs) And they put us on a forklift truck, and eventually they put us on the back of a truck, and they had to get us into what was the cargo place in (laughs) Tokyo Airport, so that the fans couldn't see us. They couldn't see us coming off the airplane or anything like that, because I think if they had seen us, they would have caused absolute bedlam. Stampede, eh? Yeah, and... (laughs) At the end of the day, it's all about their safety. Uh, I wasn't bothered about ours because I knew we we as a foursome were getting looked after Mm. by our bodyguards. But what I was always worried about was that fans could get hurt in a crush or a stampede or something Mm. like that, which did happen during our time with the band. And it was extremely worrying. And it was, I've got to be honest, it was actually quite stressful Mm. because you can see it happening in front of you. And I became very close with the guy who was our personal bodyguard, a guy called Paul Dallanegra. And, you know, Paul always used to say to me, if you ever get concerned about fans at the front of the stage, if you think there's something wrong, he would say to me, give me a signal. And then I would basically, he would then act. And he had to do it at least half a dozen occasions in the the time that I was in Bad Boys Inc. that he had to act because... (laughs) 
fans were going absolutely crazy. But again, an incredible experience. Uh-huh. It's something that I'll never forget. And I remember walking out on stage once to 100,000 fans. <sighs> and the, the noise is... Honestly, I'm surprised it didn't uh-huh. shatter glass. It was just... Incredible, and you can't hear yourself think. Something you can't even imagine unless you've experienced it. Exactly, and and sometimes I really find it difficult to portray the words to be able to Mm. portray that scenario for you because it really was unbelievable, and you really have to be there to be able to experience and to appreciate the level of noise. It's again, it's something I've never forgotten. Amazing. And, uh, and back home, I think I read you were the first band to appear on the National Lottery Show, which must have been That's a right. huge booking back then because the viewer numbers yeah. were massive when it first started. In- absolutely incredible. And I don't know where it came from. And I yeah. remember at the time, we were actually, I, I was I was really struggling at that time. Okay. I, I really wasn't enjoying it. I, I could see where we were going. Mm. I could see other bands that had appeared on the market, like your Boy Zones, yeah. these type of guys. Yeah. And I, I got very fortunate that Ronan Keating gave me um, the album, their, um, okay. their demo tape. So I was able to listen to their album and I was just like, oh my God, we're screwed. We are, we are absolutely screwed. <laughs> yeah, they're taking because, this up a notch. Yeah, because I knew this was the type of music that should have been produced by us Aye. on our behalf. And yeah. I think if that if their music had become our music i think we would have been probably as, as successful as them Aye. so i i knew immediately from listening to that record that we were screwed so i was starting to have doubts and i wasn't enjoying the experience anyway at the time and i wasn't enjoying what was going on behind the scenes i felt that my my career and my life was in the hands of people who yeah. didn't really care about us as individuals. They were only really caring about the band being a success so mm-hmm. that the, the monetary rewards would obviously present themselves. Ah, okay. And I just... Your life was almost out of your own control then. Exactly. I felt yeah. like a puppet on a string. Mm-hmm. That's the best way that I can explain it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like it. And whenever I stood up for ourselves or if I ever questioned a decision I always got you know I got seriously knocked back you know what I'll never forget once our manager grabbed me by my throat and pinned me against a wall just for questioning one of his decisions and I just thought this really isn't for me anymore so I was really starting to struggle with it at the time and then all of a sudden we get the call to go and appear on the first ever national lottery show now, don't get me wrong, I'm, again, hugely flattered that we got asked to go on the show. My only disappointment at the time was that we weren't allowed to perform. Mm, so okay, they, they invited us on. I can't even remember what they did. They, we had to do something to pick a number or something like that. Such a long time ago, Christ. <laughs> um, and um, that was my only sort of drawback at the time was that we weren't allowed to perform because I think if we had been allowed to perform I think our next single which was already scheduled would have probably given us our first top five hit and been a big big hit yeah which is what we desperately needed at the time yeah yeah um was it quite a big rivalry between all those boy bands or did you all socialise no. together and no no not no. at all no. not at all you know we used to meet the guys a lot Aye. at various gigs Smash hits, road shows, smash uh-huh, hits, uh-huh. pole winners party. Sometimes when we would go abroad and perform at big music festivals, we would meet. And I always, 
we got on very well together. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, none of these guys were my pals. Don't don't get me wrong; they were not my mates. I would never hang out with them. They were just doing the job that I was doing, and they just so happened to be in the same place that we were at that time. Yeah. And I always got on very very well with all of them. So we were very fortunate to to have met some really great people and some people that gave us some, honestly, some incredible advice and advice that I've always been very grateful for. And I remember flying to, we were flying out to Hawaii to make two music videos. So we had to fly into Los Angeles first. (laughs) And Matt Goss was on Uh, the plane from from Bross. Bross, And yeah, and very kindly invited me to sit next to him for the flight. And just... For the whole flight, he, he just told me how to be careful, what to look out for, make sure we had our own accountant, um, keep a record of all the finances, and just gave me some really, really solid advice. And then on the way back, we met Simon LeBon from Duran Duran. <laughs> and he invited us up into the bubble because they were flying first class and we were uh, down yeah. in the business side of things. And he invited us up. And again, him... And the other lads, uh, what's, he, what's he called? Is it Roger T- Taylor? Taylor. Roy yeah. Taylor. His first name escapes me. That's terrible. Um, and again, just incredible advice. Very fortunate to have been in their company for two or three hours. <laughs> Simon LeBron was very flattering, actually. He said that he'd seen us on a few shows. Oh, yeah. And again, it, what I really liked about his advice was he drummed into me particularly about the work ethic, right. about how to work harder. And he always would say, your next performance, you should go into it thinking this is going to be your best performance ever. Uh, yeah. And he would say to us, look, if you ever get recordings of your shows, record yourself, watch okay. yourself, uh-huh. critique yourself, because you're always your worst critique. Video and, analysis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know, did we play a 4 4 that night? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that was invaluable. It really was. And again, when I think back on it in hindsight, what an incredible experience to be in the company of these two huge pop stars who, who took time out of their own time mm-hmm. to speak to me on a personal level and offer me advice. And again, it's something I've never forgotten. Oh, amazing. So you said that things didn't work out in the band. And, you know, you mm. mentioned you kind of became skilled at reinventing yourself and adapting to negative situations, turning them positive. How did you get into TV presenting and, and why with MUTV? Well, that was really a stroke of luck more than anything else. I, I When the band split up, I decided that I was going to take some time off I decided that I wanted to disappear for a while. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually went up into the Highlands of Scotland for a while and I hired a cottage. Okay. And, and just hid away uh-huh. for about a year. And then I came down and did a couple of jobs which helped me pay some tax bills that all of a sudden I was facing that I never knew that we were facing because okay. we didn't earn any money during my time in the band. I was left basically penniless. Okay. And again, that was very difficult to handle because I was 22 years old, we were selling records, we were selling tickets to concerts, we were doing very well at the time of the split. And I I knew how much money we were getting paid for doing gigs because I took Simon Le Bon and Matt Goss's advice and I I was keeping a record of how much we were getting paid. So I knew that our company that we set up was turning over tens of thousands of pounds every month, all of which disappeared. So sadly, the boys and I were left um, penniless and thankfully with the jobs that I did I was able to sort of get back on my feet mm-hmm. and I quite fancied getting into sort of television presenting 
almost as soon as I came out of the band, but I decided not to mm. because I just wanted to get my head together, to be honest. Now, don't get me wrong, right? I'm not going to go down this route of telling you, oh, I fell into drugs and <laughs> I fell into alcohol and, you know, I, I fell into depression because I didn't. Yeah. It, 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 I didn't do that at all. Yeah. So I was I was totally headstrong. Um, you know, these these guys that, that I've read a couple of books from guys who said, oh, I would just go and get stoned all day, <laughs> you know, to, because they're now looking for an adult market to try and achieve. Yeah. And I'm like that. Yeah. James, that did, that was not me. I did not do any of that nonsense at all. So I did yeah. not fall, thankfully, very fortunate that I did not fall into any form of depression. Yeah. Um, I was quite headstrong. But it was difficult. It was a very difficult period in my life, and I had to be strong. And thankfully, I think through some of the lessons that I'd learned previously, I was able to come through it. And I went and got myself a job. I went through quite a, a horrible experience of the 1995 Coca-Cola Cup final, which I've, I've written about in some of my blogs. Yeah, I read that last day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that was a that was a real turning point in my life because I was really feeling sorry for myself at that that point in time, mm-hmm. and the situation and the experience that I went through made me something just made me switch, right. and I went back to London feeling a lot more positive about myself and thinking to myself, right, I now have to get over myself. Mm-hmm. I have to go and get a job. I have to put my pride behind me. And I just need to go and get a job and start earning money and being able to pay my mortgage on my bills. And I did. I got myself a little part-time job in a gym, in a, in a, in a hotel just yeah. outside London. I swear to God, it was the best thing that ever happened to me right. because I was back earning money. I was able to pay my bills. I was able to pay for food. I was able to contribute by helping people with their fitness. There was a couple of times when a couple of novelties came in and would have a real pop at me and say, oh, Chris, look at you now and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But again, it was all it was all character building. It was all fine. I wasn't overly bothered by it. Yeah. And just by pure chance, a guy that I met during my time with the band, he was presenting on the shopping channel for Granada TV and he knew that I was working in the gym so I I built myself a small career working in health and fitness again and he called me one day out of the blue and said to me look we desperately need a health and fitness advisor to come and help us on the channel to sell health and fitness equipment do you fancy coming up and doing it and you know what I didn't need a second invitation so went up to Liverpool every Wednesday every weekend from my, my home in Hertfordshire and that's where I learnt my trade in television. Oh. And it was absolutely fantastic. And I swear to God, James, anybody, and I've said this a million times, mm-hmm. anybody who has any aspirations of being a television presenter, try and get a job on a shopping channel. You've got to think fast there, in your feet. Exactly. <laughs> it's the perfect grounding oh. to learn a trade because yeah. there's no hiding place. Because trust me, if I can talk for two minutes about a white pair of socks, <laughs> I can talk for 30 seconds about a game of football. Yeah, yeah. And you, you can't hide in shopping channel because you're the face. You've got to talk. You've got to sell it. You've got to give out the information about how people can buy it. And it's not as if you can turn around to a co-presenter and say, right, tell me again, how do you wash these things? <laughs> you have to do your it on this. You're on. <laughs> and it was, it was brilliant for me because for my first few months, I was with Andy, my friend, who was the presenter. He led the program. I just chipped in with how to use equipment and what was the benefits of using the equipment. And then one day the producers came to me and said, look, how do you fancy doing this on your own? 
And again, I didn't need a second invitation. And it was absolutely fantastic for me because I was able to take instructions through my earpiece. I was able to to, to listen to what was going on in the gallery where they were uh, making the program while I was up front in front of the camera. And I knew there was no hiding place and I knew I had to think on my feet and I knew my safety nets. So if I if I was running out of things to say about a particular product, I would just revert back to the telephone number that people had to call in to buy the product. Yeah. So it, it was honestly, it was fantastic grounding for me. It really was. And then thankfully from there, I got spotted by a young producer from Manchester who came over to do a little bit of work experience with Granada Shop. And he was a way to executive produce a brand new youth magazine show on MUTV. And he saw me and basically offered me the job of the the new presenter on MUTV. And I got the gig. And that's how how my job at MUTV came about, because I got spotted. Amazing. And uh, you ended up getting to interview some of the real greats at Man United that time, didn't you? Sir Alex and Roy Keane being a couple of them. Yeah, again, just an incredible experience and very fortunate to have gone through it. And again, I've said it a million times, but MUTV was, I was so lucky to get a job at MUTV in sports broadcasting because it was my education in sports television. It was my schooling in sports television. And I was very lucky that I have a natural tie-in with Sir Alex through my family. And he was always very supportive of me. And I was very fortunate to have met him on a few occasions. And again, he would, not every time, but occasionally he would take me to one side and offer me advice and Mm. give me little tidbits. (laughs) But the one thing I always took from him was he said, you must always protect the team. No matter what, it is your job to protect the team. That's your role. Let the pundits, let the guests say what they say, but it is your job to protect this football team. And thankfully, I think that put me in good stead with with Sir Alex, and and I think he saw that, because he said to me not long after I left MUTV to never, ever change my style, and that was the biggest compliment I've ever been paid in my sports broadcast life. Amazing. You you, you worked for Celtic TV as well, didn't you? Yeah. That must have been hard being a diehard Dons fan. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was. A, it, trust me, it was a tough choice uh, because originally I got offered the Rangers job, and okay. I was just like, "Oh my god, I can't do this. I, I, I can't. I can't do this." So like the lesser of the time, two evils, was it? it basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I got offered the job with Satanta. So what happened ah, okay. was. I was still working for MUTV and I was getting a few gigs down at Sky Sports News. But unfortunately, that was the time when I broke my my leg really badly. So because of the nature of the injury of my break, it meant I couldn't work because I was in a wheelchair for a number of months and I had a lot of metal work fixed to my leg. Uh, So I was basically a health and safety risk. But the lady who brought me down to Sky Sports News, she was the head of directors. And again, she was very supportive of me. And Karen put me in touch with the guy who was going to be the new executive producer of Satanta Sports in Scotland. So I came up to Glasgow. I met Colin for lunch. And Colin told me everything that they were doing, and including the two club channels that they were setting up, Rangers and Celtic TV, to coincide with their Scottish Premier League coverage. So met Colin, had a great chat with him. He said to me, look... 
uh, go back to Manchester. I'll be in touch in a couple of days, and I'll let you know where the where it goes. And true to his word, he called me two days later and said, look, I put your showreel in front of the executive producer of the club channels. He absolutely loves you. He thinks you're fantastic. And we'd like to offer you the job of the new presenter of Rangers TV. <laughs> I swear to God, my heart sank. <laughs> because at the time, I was losing all my work left, right and centre because of the nature of my, my injury, right, because I was okay. a freelancer. Now, I wasn't quite in the depths of deprivation, but I wasn't far off, James, and I was becoming very conscious that I needed to earn a proper living again. So he said to me, look, you've got 48 hours to think about it, and then I want you to come up to Glasgow and meet this guy called Jim McMahon. So my dad and I, honest to God, man, we must have chewed the fat over this for hours (laughs) over the telephone. I spoke to people like George Adams, for example. Uh Uh-huh. To gain, because he was working for Rangers. He was at the a Rangers. Time. That's right. Yeah, he'd work for yeah. both, hadn't he? That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. So I, I spoke to Derek, and I spoke to a few of my really close pals, and the general consensus was, "Don't take it, no. because you'll, you'll you you just won't live it down with the Aberdeen <laughs> fans." Yeah. But you know, my heart was saying, "No, no, you just you just can't do this." But my my gut was kind of saying. You, you kind of got to Ali because you you got to earn a living again, and this sort of opportunity might not come round again. Yeah. And I really desperately wanted to work in Scottish football, and I saw it as a platform. So I still, believe it or not, had not made up my mind when I went back up to Glasgow a couple of days later, and I was really torn. And I went in to the offices in Cowcaddens, and I met Jim McMahon, and he sat me down. And he said to me, and I swear to God this is true, he said to me, look, we've been thinking. We've decided that we think you'd be a better fit for Celtic TV than Rangers TV. <laughs> so we'd like to offer you the job of the Celtic TV presenter. Mate, honestly, I could have hugged him. <laughs> I should have hugged him. Because with Celtic, I knew it would be okay. Mm. I, I, I felt I can get through Celtic because... There was a natural tie-in with my family because my grandpa was very friendly with Jock Steen. Okay. So I was I could I, I thought to myself I could use that connection to sort of make my way into the club and, and meet people and get them to know me. I, I also believed that to a certain degree there was some mutual respect between the two football clubs. I know that there's obviously football rivalry and fan rivalry, and I get that, and there is a nasty side to it. But I thought to myself, I'm not going to concentrate on the nasty side of it. I'm going to think more on the positive side of it. So this is going to give me an opportunity to work in Scottish football. It's going to bring me back home to Scotland, and I'm going to be able to watch my team every week as well because my job was only Monday to Friday, which frees up my weekends. Mm -hmm. So I can go now and watch my, my own team, which I hadn't been able to do for a good sort of four or five years while I was away down in London. Ah, okay. So that's how basically the Celtic TV job came about, and I, I I didn't need a second invitation to take the Celtic TV job. Yeah. You've also, oh, I think, I read worked for Talksport. You, you mentioned Sky, and then you yeah. were off to the Far East to work for ESPN, and then Qatar yeah. for for being sports, uh, getting that's into right. producing. Yeah. So right. I, I again just do a. a a sequence of events, lucky events, fortunate events. I was spotted by the guy who was the executive producer out in Singapore of ESPN Star Sports. He was home in Wales mm-hmm. and just so happened to see me on Celtic TV 
and got in touch with me and said, look, we're looking for somebody to come over because we have vast football coverage. Yeah. Would you fancy it? And I... Now, let me get this right because of the sequence of timings here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So he offered me the job in May. I accepted the job to then move over in the middle of June, but unfortunately my, my, my dad died on the 1st of June okay. unexpectedly, mm-hmm. which meant I had to delay moving out to Singapore. Right. So I actually didn't end up moving to Singapore until August of that year. And Hugh was very good with me. He said, look, just get yourself sorted. The job is here for you. Don't worry about the job. It is here. You can come whenever you're ready. And he said to me, even if it means if you have to come September or October, just come. But to be honest with you, James, I I went over quite early. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, I kind of regret that because I should have stayed to make sure my mum was better. Um, But I think I was was running away from that whole situation. Mm -hmm. And I think by moving to Singapore and that whole upheaval in my life, helped me forget that my dad had died so hence why I went over earlier than I really should have done but again I I, very lucky to go and live in Singapore for Mm. a number of years I presented for two years I absolutely loved it it was a complete eye opener for me Uh having to experience new cultures new ways of working and it was really good for me sadly I, I had to end my presenting career because the 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 rug got pulled out from under my feet because the the big boss at the time decided after my two-year contract that he didn't like my Scottish accent anymore and decided to pull me off air. And that left me very disillusioned because the guy that they brought in to replace me, lovely bloke, really liked him, an absolutely charming man. And without trying to blow smoke up my ass, I I didn't think that he was as good as me as a presenter because his, his knowledge of football was quite limited. His uh-huh. his knowledge of tennis and rugby and cricket was far superior yeah, yeah. to his knowledge of football. And I, I and it just left me disillusioned. So I actually, I'd made up my mind that I was going to leave Singapore and come back. And then believe it or not, that is when I met my wife-to-be okay. in that, that sort of, uh, that, that period. Uh-huh. Yeah, before leaving Singapore, before deciding to leave Singapore, I met Miriam. And she actually kind of gave me a purpose to try and stay in Singapore and find work in Singapore. And my boss pulled me in one day and said, look, we're going to be setting up a new 24-hour news channel. I know this is not what you want to do, but this potentially could give you a new career. How would you like to help set it up and become a producer? And I was like, hey, do you know what? That's actually not an, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> But, the, you know, the, the money was a... I had to take a big loss in uh, earnings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, that left that that left things very tight. But because Miriam all of a sudden had come into my life, yeah. my life was absolutely bloody marvellous at that time. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden I find myself in a completely new career, uh, working my way up the ladder as a producer. Aye. And I swear to God, mate, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Brilliant. Because... You know, because of where it led me and where I am now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was tough at the time because I still wanted to present and I still had ambitions of presenting. But when I moved behind the camera, I actually found myself enjoying that challenge far greater than I did when I, whenever I was in front of the camera. Uh, you must have some, uh, you know, out there. You've went for a, a kind of niche audience at Celtic TV to to probably audience of millions. You must have had some big names in British and world football heading out to to cover games with you. I'm assuming. Well, believe it or not, we didn't actually... That actually happened more when I moved to Qatar. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, so, you know, don't get me wrong, we had a few big names out, nobody earth-shattering, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, a few guys came out, but when I got the opportunity to move to Qatar, that is when uh, I really started yeah. to understand this is a different level of, of, <laughs> of how to produce live sports, particularly football mm-hmm. studio shows, yeah. and some of the names that came through, you know, the, the biggest names in world football, Rude Hullets, Arsene Wenger, Josie Mourinho's, these type of guys, Henrik Larsson's, Paul Lambert's, you know, the list is almost endless. And I got very fortunate to meet all these people and was in their company many times, not just from a professional point of view, but from a personal point of view as well, and got on with them all famously. There wasn't really anybody that I disliked or anybody that I thought, "Mm, you're a bit up your own arse. (laughs) Everybody that I met that came through Qatar was incredibly nice, incredibly charming, worked hard at their trade, added so much to our shows, and my experience in Qatar was fantastic, nice. and I'm, I, I really, you know, I got made redundant in the end, but that's okay because I understand that the, you know, the world changed dramatically, yeah. which obviously for all of us it changed dramatically, um, and I, I, I guess I was a consequence of that, I guess, yeah. um, but. It's, it's led me to where I am now to, again, have to reinvent myself. And I've got a new project coming out in the new year, which I'm so looking forward to. I'm just in the midst of putting it all together at the moment to hopefully launch at the beginning of February. And I can't wait to get going. Um, but the experience in Qatar made me fully appreciate how to properly produce live football studios because I was working with, for me, the the greatest football presenters that I could ever wish to work for, which was Andy Gray, Richard Keyes, Richard and Keys, yeah. Angus Scott. Um, and Angus Scott was incredible, loved me so much. I became very close with Angus. Uh-huh. He was brilliant for me. Richard was on a different level. He was very difficult. Okay. Um, he was hugely demanding. He 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 was testing me many uh, times. Yeah. And I'm an easy target for their banter because of my background, so that I was an easy target for them as well. But I had to, but at the end of the day, Richard was only trying to pull the best out of me as a person and as a producer. And I know for working with Richard Keys that I am 10 times the producer that I am today before I actually started working with them. So even though I had to go through a lot of nonsense with them and a, and a lot of bullshit, mm-hmm. The, the experience of working for them, with them, has made me a better person and a better producer, and for that I'll always be grateful. Uh, I mean, they obviously got chased out of Sky, but those, those two were the, the ones who basically reinvented <laughs> punditry and, uh, in, and sports presenting. Incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. And I remember the first few months working with them, and I would watch Andy go up to our touchscreen and do his analysis and think, oh my God, this is a different level. Mm-hmm. And I would occasionally have conversations with Richard and Andy before we would go live and they would talk me through what they wanted to do and I couldn't see it and I couldn't understand it and I'd feel a bit pissed off that I was getting, you know, what I wanted to do was not going to go on the show and I'd put all the effort and the work in and then when they do it live on the show, then I go, ah, that's why you're doing it and I'm not doing it, you know? Um, And again, it just helped build my confidence as a producer it made me look at how we analyze football on tv in a completely different light 
and it was brilliant for me. It really was, James. Just hearing Andy Gray's voice for me just brings back, you know, that that 90s Premier League football, you know, the golden kind of era for my youth. It's, it was amazing. He's the best. Yeah. He's the best. His, his, his analytical knowledge of the game is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Now, I've no, I know that you've got your Gary Nevels and your um, the Jamie Carragher's these days that work on Sky. I haven't seen a great deal of them because I've lived abroad for so long. Yeah. So it'd be very difficult and be very wrong of me to um, give a, an opinion on those two because I've not seen them enough to be able to form an opinion. Because for me, I grew up watching Andy Gray and Richard Keyes yeah. on Sky. And I was very lucky to, to have worked with them. I really was. Now, writing has always been something that, that, you know, another string you've had in your boat for the years, whether it be blogging or, or publishing books. And you've got a, a new book that's just uh, been released not that long ago, In Time for Christmas. Mm. Uh, mm. What was the sort of motivation behind that? And you talked about your, your hero being Willie Miller. The position yeah. you've got to, you've obviously had a chance to, to work with some of your heroes now, and he, he wrote the foreword for you, didn't he? Yeah, that was a, a real treat. I was very lucky that Alex Ferguson wrote the foreword for my first book. Uh-huh. And... You know, he's my all-time hero, and now another of my all-time heroes has written the forward for this book. So I'm very lucky, and I have no idea why I've been so lucky throughout my life to be able to converse with these guys, to call them my pals, to be in their company, and to be able to call upon them whenever I've needed them. Yeah. And I'm just really lucky. And writing the book was... It was really good for me at the time because I'd just been made redundant, so I needed something to occupy my mind while we moved the family from Qatar to Austria Mm -hmm. and set up here, which was a bit of an upheaval for all of us. But it took my mind off the the negativity of being made redundant. So I threw myself into the book. The, the, The idea for the book actually came from a publisher, Peter Burns from Polaris, because he approached me about three years ago, give or take, and gave me the idea that through my blogs that could potentially be a series of books because he was a big fan of the blogs and he really enjoyed reading them. Mm-hmm. So he pitched the idea to me and I have to confess at the time, James, I wasn't overly keen on it because what I didn't want the people that followed me on social media or the people that knew me to think that I was using the blog as a means to make money because uh, that was never the intention. The intention was always to write the stories and to put it out there for people to enjoy. But again, if I come back to my wife, she said to me, it was about 18 months ago, give or take, just before we, we got made redundant and made the move. She said to me, look, your blogs are doing really well. It's a really nice platform. It, it, it's, it's doing great and I'm very proud of you. Mm-hmm. But because these stories are so good yeah. and because you've been able to interview all these great guys from Aberdeen's history, mm-hmm. don't you think that their story deserves potentially a bigger and a better platform than just your blog page online. (laughs) So she said to me, if you're able to produce an actual book that tells these stories where people can do it the old-fashioned way by reading a book instead of going on Kindle or anything like that or reading online, don't you think there's something quite romantic about that? And she sold me immediately. Immediately, I was sold on it. So I got back in touch with Peter and said to him, right, if the offer still stands, let's do it. And Peter was absolutely, let's do it. I I I don't need to even think about it. Let's do it. So Peter and I went away. We thought about a few things. We had a few meetings. 
And in the end, we came up with the idea to trace Aberdeen's history in Europe, but only pinpoint particular games. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and hence why we now have a brand new book. Yes, and uh, the reviews I've seen have, have all been great. And even though I'll confess I'm nay an Aberdeen fan, it was an enjoyable read, even for me. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, we dodge all my, my Don's fan listeners, which you know, probably predominantly are, to go out and buy it as well. It's definitely uh, definitely you. worth it. Uh, so I'm glad you enjoyed I, it. I think uh, we, they can get it from any decent book uh, store. I, well, I, I got mine from Amazon, so I maybe shouldn't okay. admit that. Yeah, yeah. You, you can get it. You can get it online through the yeah. usual platforms. You can yeah. get it through my, my publisher as well, Polaris Publishing House. Yeah. So yeah, it's available on the normal channels. And I'd imagine most people probably are already uh, signed up and uh, to your to your blog on on Facebook and stuff. But how can they find it if they're not? So people can find the the book you're talking about, or, or also the the blog on, on Facebook. Sorry, like, yeah. beg your pardon. Mm. So the the blog is attached to my Twitter site. Mm-hmm. So if you're not on Twitter, the blog is www.alibeg.com. So that's the blog site. My official Facebook page, which is attributed to the blog, is official Ali Beg. I'm on Twitter, Ali underscore Beg. I'm on Instagram as well, but I'm not trendy or, you know, I'm not I'm not down with the kids enough to be overly excited by Instagram. I just don't get it. <laughs> I'm a bit the same. But I'm on the, I'm on the normal channels. Aye, great, great. Well, I would also urge them to, to, to look through that because some cracking uh, reads in there as well. And Thank you. So uh, just turning back to Aberdeen before we look at your, your mm. best of living, What's happening there? You may be here fingering Paul Smear and me. What's happening stadium-wise new is, is the move, the stadium move to, to West Hill being shelved? What's happening there? No, it's there? not been shelved. No. So what they've had to do is obviously because of the COVID situation, the most important thing was that the club remained as a football club. Aye. So to the chairman, great credit, and to the board of directors, they made sure that any financial holes were plugged. So they reinvested in the football club and made sure that everybody kept their jobs. Nobody at the football club lost their jobs Mm. and that they kept the football club afloat. And I have a huge amount of respect and I really admire them for doing that in really what was a horrific time for all of us. And I know that potentially we might be going through it again. You know, God willing, we don't. But, you know, th- this is just the world that we live in at the That's moment. Austria has so been particularly of, tough, hasn't it? Just yeah, it's there. just yeah. horrific. Oh, my God. So simply because of that, they've had to basically put the idea back on the shelf for just now. Uh, okay. There's a lot of talk about potentially a new site yes. not far from where Pataudry is now. Yeah, so I, I know that discussions have opened about the potential of, of building the new stadium almost directly next door to Pataudry. But I think until the world does right itself and it becomes a better place again, I think the talk of a new stadium has to be put on hold just purely and simply to keep the football club afloat. That's fair enough. Who do you think of your current crop of Don's players? Do you think any of them have got a chance to to kick on and be a success? Maybe doing the Premier League abroad or or with the national team? There's a couple of gems coming through. Yeah, so we've got Calvin Ramsey coming through, Jack McKenzie coming through. These lads are very special players. Mm -hmm. And I think if they keep their feet on the ground and they listen very carefully to the people at the football club, 
I always get a little bit concerned about young lads who get their heads turned by agents and by newspaper talk and internet gossip of other football clubs being interested and looking Mm -hmm. at them. It always slightly worries me. I always think that these young lads should listen to their manager first and foremost. Then they should talk to the people that helped them through the academies that they became very close with. Always use their advice to the best of your ability because money will come fame if you're looking for fame it'll come but first and foremost just concentrate on playing football that's right concentrate on getting better and concentrate on getting rid of the mistakes that potentially you can make week in week out so just evolve as a player week in week out that's the advice that I would say to these young lads because it will come if you develop and you do well stay strong in the head continue with a great attitude Mm -hmm. that will all come there's no rush there's absolutely no rush I I always think Mero our player Scottish player should take the sort of John McGinn, Andy Robertson route get get you know a couple of couple of hundred games of SPL under your belt before you make a move awesome. and, and make the move yeah. gradually because look where Robertson ended up you know he didn't get any higher levels than exactly. Liverpool just now winning Champions Leagues but you know his journey is remarkable yeah I couldn't agree more and I also think it's very important that the parents of these players also don't get their yes. heads turned yes. by agents who promise them the world so that they, they'll get their boy or their daughter to bigger and better clubs <laughs> and earning fortunes. Just take your time. And I think, personally, you should always listen to the people that you are very close with at the football club, yes. which is your manager and your coaches. Aye. Yeah. Aye. Right, Ali, I know that I've kept you a little bit longer than uh, I said I would, no, but if you no could problem. take me a, a quick run through your, your best 11, your best Aberdeen 11 uh, all time, I think you, you'd prepare for me, wouldn't you? In goals, Theo Schnelders. Uh-huh. Right back, Stuart McKimmy. Uh-huh. In the centre of defence, Alex McLeish and Willie Miller. <laughs> At left back, Doug Rugby. Then I've gone with four across the middle. Gordon Strachan, Jim Bett, Neil Simpson and Peter Weir. Uh I've got Ian Jess to float in the hole. (laughs) And I've got Frank McDougall up front. Okay. Right, so we'll maybe mention a couple of them. There might be some eyebrows raised about a couple. Maybe uh, Snelders over Leighton. Yeah, so I went with Theo Schnelders quite simply because his save from Anton Rogan in the uh, 1990 Scottish Cup final is the greatest save I've <laughs> ever seen live. Class. Aye. Plus the fact that he came in to basically fill Jim Layton's boots after Jim That's left right. for Manchester United mm-hmm. and very quickly... We had obviously not forgotten about Jim Layton, but there were no issues with Jim having moved to Manchester United because his boots had been filled. He was class. Frank McDougall up front then, why has he got the nod? Quite simply because he's the greatest striker and natural goal scorer that I've been fortunate to watch. Frank was, for me, a one-off And I think if he had not had to retire because of his back injury, 
I am very confident that he would have broken Joe Harper's record for Aberdeen, okay. the goal-scoring record. Aye. Frank was an incredible poacher. Brilliant. And um, who else have we got in there? Jim Bett, he was always class, but he was he was maybe one of the most underrated players that's kind of came yes. through now, in terms of international recognition and things. 100%. And I'm being a little bit controversial here because in my first book... Sorry, I beg your pardon. In Willie Miller's book, hmm. where Willie named his best ever Aberdeen eleven, I actually named Scott Severin over Jim Betts. Okay. Because at the time, I felt that Scott Severin, who was our club captain, was dragging Aberdeen through uh, okay. some really good times, almost single-handedly. Now, that's not being disrespectful to Scott's teammates at the time, but I just felt that he was an unbelievable skipper off the park and more importantly, on the park. Uh-huh. With the power of hindsight, if I'd have my time again, I would probably have put Jim over Scott, yeah. hence why I'm now putting Jim in over Scott. Because having posted on social media about Jim Bet many times over the years and reading the comments about what an incredible player he was, yeah. it just got me thinking about that whole scenario of should I have put him in my best 11 <laughs> so he's in now you gave me the opportunity to do yep. that James yes <laughs> brilliant who, uh, who'd, who'd gaffer that team oh no the contest gaffer, the boss <laughs> Sir Alex exactly. who'd, who'd skip other side then is that no contest either Willie 100% Aye. no argument no discussion you drop uh, this team into the, the current SPL where they finish Oh, champions by a mile <laughs> oh by a country mile how about in Europe yeah, they go far in Europe yes I do I compete I think I think we would make Champions League group stages I, I wouldn't be surprised some team some team Ali I always just finish up with some quick fire questions if that's okay just sure. the first thing that comes sure. in your head just four or five uh, the first thing is one thing you would change about football to improve it Scottish referees. <laughs> I see they're talking about bringing VAR in. Are you, are you happy oh, with that? Or? I'm not sure because uh, I've seen too often how it does not work no, no. and how ridiculous it's becoming, especially with offsides. Mm. There was an incident the other night, I can't remember what game it was, where the guy was literally a millimetre off. Right. His big toe was a millimetre offside. Come on. You're absolutely killing the game by doing that. So I'm really in two minds about VAR. Okay. Um, If they made a movie of your life, who would you like them to cast as you? (laughs) Jesus. Oh, my God. Uh, Good Lord, I've got no idea. Um, I've got to go with somebody Scottish, obviously. Uh, wow, you've really stumped me there, mate. <laughs> I really don't know. No. Uh, James McAvoy? <laughs> James McAvoy, want to play Ali Big? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> um, your favourite stadium to watch football in other than Pataudry? Old Trafford. Good one. Okay, your best and your worst interview ever. The best was Sir Alex Ferguson. Mm-hmm. The worst 
was Billy Connolly. Oof. Because, <laughs> because, and nothing to do with Billy, no. because I made a complete and utter tit of myself <laughs> because it was the one and only time that I really got starstruck oh, okay. when it came to a celebrity. Yeah. I never, ever got starstruck when I was presented with an opportunity to meet a celeb back in the day. Oh. But when I met Billy, I went to pieces and made <laughs> an absolute fool of myself to the point where I actually ended up apologising and <laughs> left him. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, uh, very last question. When you were playing, who in the yeah. pro game do you think your style was closest to in terms of attributes and personality on the pitch? That's another good question. I would say in terms of style, I was probably like a Stuart McKimmy. Uh-huh. And I really hope I'm not doing Stuart a disservice here. Well, I've had him on, so I'll I'll let him know. (laughs) Yeah, he'll probably be horrified that I've even compared myself to him. But as as a, a speaker on the pitch, I think I was like, I would probably say a Yap Stam okay, or a David May. Definitely not a Roy Keane because Roy was too <laughs> aggressive. I wasn't aggressive. I was a mouthy git. <laughs> I, I wasn't like Willie because Willie was actually quite quiet on the pitch, believe uh, it or yeah. not. Yeah. Maybe an Alex McLeish, Roy Aiken type okay. of character. Okay. We'll go for that. Well, okay. Ali, thank you very much for, for giving up your time tonight and, and coming on. It's been fascinating to hear about your, your life and career. And uh, thank, thank you again. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Really enjoyed it. Thanks and, so much, mate. And uh, I'll, I'll urge the listeners to, to go out and, and buy that book, Aberdeen European Nights. Thank you. It's a, a nice stock and filler. Thank you so much. There we go. Right, thank you. Well, a massive thanks to Ali for coming on the show this week to tell us about his fascinating life's journey so far. Please do go out and buy his new book, especially if you're of a Dawn's persuasion. Uh, it's a fine stock and filler for a loved one even. If you want to enter our transfer window competition, don't be shy. £5 gets you into 31 draws and all that money goes to charity. Some cracking prizes to be had, so get in touch via the Facebook, Twitter or Instagram pages for information for entry. And that's your lot for this week. Join me next week when I will have another instalment and I'll be joined by Matthew Kinghorn. Bye for now.